Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Contagious is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash contagious. Day 5 The Invasion Like most jobs, being the president's go-to behind-the-scenes man had pros and cons. Black budgets, pro. Watching the most powerful people in Washington do whatever you told them to do, pro. Meetings in the Oval Office, where you are the center of attention, pro. That same meeting, at 3 a.m., to deliver bad news, that would be a con, a big con. I'm afraid there are new incidents, Murray said. The president was in his pajamas. Vanessa was fully dressed, hair pulled back tight as ever. Maybe, like Murray, she hadn't even been to bed yet. Or maybe she was a vampire and didn't need to sleep at all. He wouldn't have ruled that out. With that weather analysis, Gutierrez asked, Did Montoya's idea find this mystery satellite? Not yet, Mr. President, Murray said. We're still getting NASA to pull their heads out of their asses and focus all their energies on it, if you'll pardon my French, sir. Even in an emergency, bureaucracy is what it is, Gutierrez said. Keep me informed on that. So let's hear about this new development. Murray cleared his throat and stepped into the breach. Two people infected with the rot were found at a rest stop near Bay City, Michigan. They did not have triangles. Donald Jewell of Pittsburgh and his teenage daughter, Betty. The father died on the spot. The daughter was being kept in one of the portable labs for observation. We flew Dr. Montoya's team there. They performed the examination, and in the process, the girl became violent and killed Dr. Amos Braun. What? Gutierrez said. How? How did it happen? She took his scalpel and stabbed him in the throat, sir. The girl then tried to attack Dr. Montoya. Agent Clarence Otto shot and killed the girl. How is Montoya? Gutierrez asked. Is she okay? Was anyone else hurt? No, sir, Murray said. Dr. Braun was the only casualty. Gutierrez slumped into his chair. Vanessa seemed to pick up on this and leaned forward. And why wasn't Agent Otto in the room? She asked. Murray felt his face flush red. Just a bit. Montoya and Braun were doing emergency surgery on the girl. Agent Otto was in the computer room, monitoring the situation. But he wasn't inside the room where they were operating. No. She raised her eyebrows. And how exactly does that happen in a case where all types of people turn into murderers? Murray said nothing. If he'd insisted on proper procedure, Otto would have been inside the room, and Amos would probably still be alive. The trailer was cramped, and extra bodies got in the way, but that was no excuse to ignore safety. Vanessa had him dead to rights. You said incidents, plural, Vanessa said. What else? We have a body in Gaylord, Michigan, Murray said. Male, Caucasian, found alone in his house, corpse was black and rotted. 
Paramedics performed the swab test and got a positive result. Gutierrez sat forward again. When did this happen? About eight hours ago. Eight hours, Gutierrez said. Don't you have an alert system in place for things like this? Yes, Mr. President. The paramedics called the hospital, and it seems one of the local doctors wanted to evaluate the body himself. That delayed a call to the CDC, and when that call was made, it took a little while for the information to reach Dr. Cheng. Cheng, Vanessa said. He's the only one outside of Du Phillips' team that knows everything about this situation. Is that right? Yes, ma'am, Murray said. Vanessa nodded. So, it's safe to say that your high level of secrecy is responsible for this delay. If we had a nationwide alert out, we'd have heard about this Gaylord corpse much sooner, correct? She had his balls, and she was squeezing. That's possible, ma'am, but we have more pressing issues at the moment. I ran Donald Jewell's cell phone and credit card records. A few days ago, he made multiple calls to a Bobby Jewell in Gaylord. Turns out that's his brother. We also obtained all of Betty Jewell's cell phone text messages from the past week. Messages from yesterday described her feeling ill and said that her father and cousin Chelsea Jewell were feeling the same. Wait one second, Vanessa said. You read this girl's private text messages. Yes, ma'am, Murray said. All cell phone text messages are recorded in the databases of the phone companies. Every text message ever sent, I'm told, is still stored somewhere. We acquired Betty's text history. Acquired, Vanessa said, which is war against terrorism lingo for illegally obtained. With all due respect, Miss Colburn, Murray said, without even a shred of respect in his voice, I think we have more important things to worry about right now. I agree, Gutierrez said. What else did you get out of the text, Murray? We think Chelsea has the same strain as Betty and Donald. We don't know much, but this strain does not show triangle growth. It's something new. However, Betty's text said Bobby Jewell had some small welts on his arm and that he was itching. We think that means first-stage triangle growths. This is a chance for us to get the infection at its earliest stage, sir. I'd recommend sending Dew Phillips and his team immediately. Dew's team, Vanessa said. By that, you mean Perry Dossey. No way. We're not going through that again. Murray's stomach churned. He needed a Tums in Pronto. He'd sent due to Gaylord right before he'd walked into the Oval Office. We have to send Perry, sir, Murray said. Dossie's the only one who can detect the hosts. Vanessa smiled. He hated that smile. Really fucking hated it. But you already know where the jewels live, Vanessa said. And you didn't get that information from Perry Dossie, correct? He had walked right into that one. So fucking obvious, he hadn't even realized it. Yes, ma'am, but they could behave like other infected hosts and run, so we need Dossie. I see, Vanessa said. Well, I would think that if Dossie had detected this Gaylord infection, you would have already said so. So am I right in assuming he did not detect this one? That's correct, Murray said. He feels that, um... His ability to detect the hosts is being jammed by some unknown force. So he did not detect it this time, Vanessa said, which means that if the jewels do run, there's no knowing whether Perry can track them at all. Murray's face felt very hot. I would say that's correct, ma'am. 
We also don't know if this jamming will continue, or if he can hear them should he get closer. He's the only detection asset we have. We need to send him now. What we need to do, Vanessa said, is make sure we help the jewels before it's too late. After we have them, then bring in Dossie, under heavy guard, to communicate with the triangles. He can still do that, right, Murray? Yes, Murray said, although he really didn't know the answer. Then we agree it's a bad idea to send Dossie in first. Murray shook his head. That's not what I said. Come on, Murray, she said. Your tangled web of secrets just isn't working. We need to stop fucking around. I hardly think Amos Braun was fucking around when he died in the line of duty, Miss Colburn. The words shot out of his mouth before he could control them. Of course, that's not what she meant, Gutierrez said coolly. Right, Vanessa? She glared at Murray. The eyes sent a clear message. You just embarrassed me in front of the president, and I won't forget it. Of course, she said. My apologies, Murray. Gutierrez nodded once, as if the apology ended the incident for good. Vanessa turned to face Gutierrez. What I meant to say, John, was that we need to step this up a level. We need to send in Ogden. Again with calling the president by his first name. And have Ogden do what? Murray asked. Blockade the town? Go door to door and administer Margaret's test? Exactly, she said. That's exactly what we have to do. President Gutierrez looked at her for quite a long time, his fingers tapping a pattern on the desk. He turned and looked at Murray. Won't it be impossible to control secrecy if we do that? Murray looked at the president, then at Vanessa. Her eyes were cold and emotionless once again. He didn't like her, but he respected that kind of bold move. She wanted to send in the troops, lock down an entire town. Vanessa Colburn did not fuck around. Actually, sir, Murray said, I agree with Miss Colburn, and I believe we can preserve secrecy. Dr. Chang has been using a story about flesh-eating bacteria as cover for his research. Say a plane is flying over Gaylord with research material for the flesh-eating bacteria, and the plane goes off radar. Well, that could inadvertently expose civilians. The local population is at risk, which gets us total cooperation of area law enforcement. We use local cops as our spokespeople. The residents will listen to them. We have enough tests to check all the residents we can find. Testing's an easy sell when we tell people they could rot and die horribly if they have the bacteria and go untreated. We evacuate the town, test everyone on the way out, then go door to door to see who's left behind. We either get the infected coming out of town or we get them in their homes. As soon as we secure the town, we let everyone back in. Two days at the most. Gutierrez raised his eyebrows in surprise. You rattled that off like you've invaded a town before. Murray nodded. There have been instances. If you're willing to sign the secrecy assurance documents, I can share any story you'd like to hear. I have 30 years worth. Gutierrez tapped the desktop some more before he spoke. How long will it take Ogden's men to deploy to Gaylord? Otsego Airport is right in the town proper, Murray said. Ogden and his men can land in C-17s, complete with Humvees, and we'll have Ospreys and Apaches in support. He'll probably be on the ground in Gaylord three or four hours from the time I make the call. But, sir, I still strongly suggest putting Dossie in play. If he can snip out the hosts, it could shorten the process. 
Ogden's men can make sure he stays under control. Gutierrez turned to Vanessa. She nodded. Do it, Murray, Gutierrez said. Get Tom Maskell an overview of the bacteria story details, and we'll coordinate. But I want Dossie and Phillips to sit tight until Ogden arrives. And I'm not kidding, Murray. They better sit down and get some coffee and not do a damn thing. I am going to check up on that, and if I find out that my orders have been ignored, you're finished. Murray needed to get the hell out of the Oval Office and call due before Perry could do anything stupid. Yes, sir, Murray said. If you'll excuse me, I have to implement this right away. Gutierrez nodded. Murray almost ran out of the room. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. On a remote island in frigid Lake Superior, a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Wake up, Mommy. Chelsea stood at the foot of her parents' bed, eating a Nestle's Crunch Eskimo pie. It was only 8 a.m., and this was her third Crunch bar. Mommy and Daddy didn't get to make the rules anymore. Try to wake them up, but don't use words. For real? Speak to me with your thoughts. Sorry, Chelsea thought. My connection is going to be the strongest with you. You will help me talk to the rest. Now try to wake them up. Chelsea took a bite of ice cream, swallowed it, then concentrated. Wake up, sleepyheads! Nothing happened. Try again. Don't be nice, Chelsea. You know how when you get angry, when you scream, your voice gets louder? Yes. Thoughts work the same way. Have your parents ever done anything to you to make you angry? Chelsea's smile faded away. Why shouldn't she have all the ice cream she wanted? Why wouldn't Daddy let her get her ears pierced? And why couldn't she have a puppy? She wanted a puppy. That just wasn't fair. Maybe Daddy needed protection, but he also needed to stop being bad. Chelsea focused again. Wake up, Daddy, or I'm going to spank you. Daddy sat up fast and fully awake. He just stared at Chelsea. She had never seen Daddy's face look like that before. His mouth was open, 
and his eyes were all wide. Did you say something, honey? He absently scratched at his left arm. A big, orange, scabby thing came off in his hand. Without taking his eyes from his daughter, he tossed the scabby thing away and started scratching again. I told you to wake up or I would spank you. Daddy stopped scratching. His right hand just sort of hung on his left shoulder, frozen and half scratch. That's what I thought, he said in a quiet voice. Chelsea turned to stare at Mommy. Wake up, Mommy. Mommy lifted her head, then set it back down, rolled over, and groaned. Oh, I'm so hot, she said. Bob, tell Chelsea to stop screaming and go back to bed. She made me so goddamn sick. Daddy kept staring. Uh, Candy? Uh, you better wake up. I'm not kidding, Bob, Mommy said in her daddy-is-so-stupid voice. Chelsea dropped the ice cream stick on the floor. Mommy, you get out of bed, or I'll make Daddy spank you. Mommy sat up slowly and pulled the blankets right under her chin. She stared at her daughter, face full of confusion. Chelsea? Mommy whispered. Am I hearing you in in my, my head? Get up, Candy, Daddy said. Please, I... She's making me want to... to punish you. Mommy looked at Daddy and started to cry. She wasn't getting up. Chelsea had told her to get up. Daddy, Mommy is being a bad girl. Mommy shook her head. Daddy got out of bed and walked out of the bedroom. Chelsea stared at Mommy as they listened to Daddy walk downstairs, open a drawer in the kitchen, then walk back up. When he came into the bedroom... He was holding Mommy's heavy spanky spoon in his shaking hand. Mommy, this is going to hurt Daddy more than it hurts you. Mommy just kept shaking her head and crying until Daddy really got going. Then she started to scream. The Need for Speed Colonel Charlie Ogden looked over Corporal Cope's shoulder. They both stared at a computer screen showing a map of Gaylord, Michigan. Lot of roads in and out of that town, Colonel, Cope said. Noted, Ogden said. What's the population? Over 3,500, sir. That's a lot of people to manage with one company. I'm thinking the same thing, Ogden said. But we have state and local police helping. How long a flight for the C-17s? About an hour, sir, Cope said. Plus an hour to load up and another to fly. We could have X Company offloaded and ready to deploy in under three hours. Call the pilots and the platoon leaders, Ogden said. They don't pay us to have our bags packed for nothing. We scramble now. I want to be offloaded in two and a half, not three. Yes, sir. Cope left the desk and started making calls. Ogden sat down and studied the map. The airport was right in town. The hatchlings had made that mistake in Wajamiga as well, building a gate so close to a landing strip that Ogden had landed his troops only a couple of miles away from the target. Cope was right. There were a lot of roads. First glance showed about 20 ways out of town, not counting the highways I-75 and M-32. No real choke points. Ogden could have the police handle the highways, keep a lower profile that way, but he wasn't going to put a couple of cops on each back road. The infected were just too dangerous for that. 
he'd need to put up a roadblock on each small road, stationed with at least four men. The smaller roads were mostly paved rural routes through farmland, although there were a lot of vehicle-capable dirt trails that wound through wooded areas. And then the woods themselves, where people could just walk out and avoid the roads altogether. His men would be spread fairly thin to cover it all. Cope, Ogden said. Sir? Call Captain Lodge and activate Whiskey Company. We need them for this. We'll leave Yankee and Zulu companies at Fort Bragg. Best to have a reserve that can react fast in case we're tied up in Gaylor, don't you think? Are you asking my opinion, sir? No, Ogden said. It's a rhetorical question. In that case, I agree with whatever you say, Colonel. That's what I like about you, Cope. You're so opinionated. Now make the calls. Yes, sir. Ogden would have felt better using all four companies, but it was just too much to move a full battalion into a small town. Plus, it was prudent to leave two companies of the Domrek free to react in case a gate popped up somewhere else. The Domrek was the only unit that could deploy and be combat-ready anywhere in the Midwest inside of three hours. The next fastest response time would come from the Division Ready Force. The DRF's mission was to put lead elements anywhere in the world within 18 hours of an alert. If the DRF had to deploy in the continental United States, it would probably cut it down to seven or eight hours. But no way in hell could they be ready to fight in three hours. When it came to that kind of speed, there was Charlie Ogden's unit and no one else. How to deal with the death of a friend. Clarence Otto sat in the modified sleeper cabin of the Margomobile. Margaret on his lap, her forehead in the crook of his neck, and her legs supported by his arm. Her tears and snot dripped onto his jacket. If he noticed, he didn't seem to care. She couldn't stop crying. She wanted to, tried to, but she couldn't. She'd cried all night until she'd fallen asleep on the computer room floor, then started again as soon as she woke. They were driving north to Gaylord, driving to more death, to more horror. She was still wearing her scrubs, the same one she'd slept in, the same one she'd been wearing under the hazmat suit when Betty Jewell killed Amos Braun. Killed her friend. A friend she would never, ever see again. She just wanted him back. Why couldn't he just come back? I'm so sorry, Margot. Clarence said as he gently petted her hair. He kept saying that. Maybe he didn't know what else to say. It didn't matter what he said, really. She was grateful just for the sound of his voice. She should have been the one to call Amos's wife. She'd never met the woman, but still, Margaret should have done it. She'd taken the coward's way out, though. Dew sent a couple of FBI agents to deliver the news. I need to get up, she said. I have to watch the video from my helmet camp. Maybe I missed something. Maybe I already forgot something when... Her voice trailed off. There's plenty of time to work later, Clarence said. You need a rest. Besides, we're driving. It's not safe for you to be in the trailer when this thing is rolling along. He kept petting her hair. The cold lump in her chest wouldn't go away. If only I could have gotten his helmet off sooner, she said quietly her sobs breaking up her sentence. You know that's not true, Clarence whispered. She cut his artery. There was nothing you could have done. But I, I was in charge. It's my fault. 
She felt Clarence shaking his head, his chin rubbing softly against her hair. You're smarter than that, Margot. I know you're going to try and blame yourself, because that's the kind of person you are. You want to take everything on your shoulders. But blaming yourself for this death is stupid, and you know it. That girl had enough drugs in her to knock out an elephant. She had shown no signs of violent behavior. Hell, her hands were strapped down. No one could have seen it coming. In fact, if it's anyone's fault, it's mine, because I'm responsible for protecting you both. I wasn't even in the room. But we told you to stay out of the way, Margaret said. Too cramped in there with an extra body. If, if you hadn't been in the computer room, watching it on the monitor. I can override any order you give me if I think your safety is at risk. I could have stayed in the autopsy room. If I had, Amos would still be alive. Margaret sat up and looked at him. Don't do that, Clarence. It's not your fault. I know, and it's not yours either. Another sob grabbed her body, grabbed it, and shook it. Amos was dead. Who was going to look after his daughters? Had the FBI agents delivered the news yet? Would his family ever know the truth, or was Murray already dealing another cover story? Amos Braun deserved a posthumous Presidential Medal of Freedom. His family would get a lie about a lab accident and an insurance payout. We can look for blame all day, Clarence said. That's not going to bring him back. All it's going to do is take our focus away from the job at hand. More people are going to die, Margot. You can bet on that. More good people like my boy Amos. It sucks to say, but we can grieve him all we want once we beat this fucking thing. You want to place blame? Place it where it belongs. Place it on this infection. That's what killed Amos. Not me, and not you. Another set of sobs hit. But this time, she finally forced them into submission. Clarence was right. This disease had taken Amos, taken all the others. If she could stop it, if she could kill it, then that was the greatest tribute she could pay to her friend. You know what's funny? Clarence said. What? I finished up 20 bucks ahead. He'd be so pissed if he knew I won. Margaret couldn't believe Clarence could joke at a time like this. Then she thought of Amos's face when he took the 20 from Clarence, or the scowl when he had to hand it over. For some reason, she pictured him looking down on both of them, pointing and laughing. And despite the pain, she laughed a little herself. Mr. Burkle, the Postman. John Burkle was a bit behind. Neither rain, nor sleet, nor the gloom of night, but notice how no one ever listed nor horribly rotted blackened corpses as one of the things that could keep you from your appointed rounds. John had called 911, then waited for the ambulance and cops to arrive. He couldn't say for sure if it had been Sheffy in that house. Sheffy was the only one who lived there, but that black thing could have been anyone. The paramedics had even given John some test for flesh-eating bacteria, which, thank God, turned out to be negative. He'd gone home after that, a bit shaken up by the whole ordeal, which meant that today he had a double load of mail to deliver. He stuffed shopper coupons and magazines into the mailbox, shut it, drove back onto the road, and checked his next batch. The jewels. It was insane to think that flesh-eating bacteria had hit Gaylord of all places. Nothing happened in Gaylord, 
which was exactly why John Burkle loved it so much. He pulled up to the jewels box and put in two days' worth of mail. He started to drive away, then stopped when he saw Bobby Jewel walking down his long tree-lined driveway. Bobby was carrying his little daughter, Chelsea, who was waving a letter. What a doll that one was. All those blonde curls. If she turned out to be half the looker her mother was, the girl was going to break some hearts when she got into high school. Hey there, Chelsea, John called. Got some mail for me? Yes, sir, Mr. Postman. About ten feet from the truck, Bobby set Chelsea down. She ran forward, holding up the letter as if it were an object of great importance. Little kids were such a hoot. Something as mundane as mailing a letter could carry newness and excitement. Here you go, Mr. Postman. John took the letter with affected importance. Well, thank you very much, young lady. Chelsea actually curtsied. John just wanted to eat her up. You're welcome, Mr. Postman. My daddy wants to show you something. Oh? John looked up. Bobby had closed the distance and just stood there. John knew Bobby from summer softball league, but damn, the guy didn't look good at all. Sunken eyes, pale skin, looked like he'd lost at least 15 pounds. Hey, John, Bobby said. I gotta show you the damnedest thing. What's that? Bobby unzipped his coat, reached in, and pulled out a rusty red monkey wrench. Man, this thing is stuck like you wouldn't believe. John looked at the wrench, then looked at Bobby. Why the hell would Bobby show him a stuck monkey wrench? John's internal alarm went off. What if Bobby looked like crap because he had that flesh-eating shit? Uh, Bobby, I don't have time right now. Why's that, Mr. Postman? Chelsea said. John automatically looked down at the girl. Even as he did, he knew that it was a mistake. By the time he looked up, the monkey wrench was a rusty red blur. He flinched just before the wrench smashed him on the left side of his jaw. He slid to the right, falling off the seat and into the van. He tried to get to his feet, but they were tangled in the gas and brake pedals. Time became a dreamy, slow-moving sludge. He knew that the wrench was coming again. The moment before that metallic hit dragged on forever. His taser. His hand searched for his bag, for the weapon that could save him. But it was too late. The slow-motion sensation evaporated when he felt a blast on his left ear. His head exploded with concussive pain. The van seemed to spin around him. He tried to get up again, but his arms and legs felt so weak. Then he felt weight bearing down on him. He felt strong, calloused hands on forehead and jaw, forcing his mouth open. He felt a small, hot, wet tongue slide into his mouth. And then he felt the burning. You have been listening to Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, 
wherever podcasts are available.